This is Business Now with Ross Greenwood. Hi there, it's great to have your company here on Business Now for another week. Uh, I'm Ross Greenwood. Coming up on the program today, after its clumsy handling of Australia Day, Woolworths surprises markets with a profit warning and a $1.7 billion asset write-down. We'll explain that for you. Economic theory says after so many rate rises, the country should be headed for recession. But just like America, there are signs of strength. Recession forecasts for now are completely wrong. So why is that? and the passing of a property industry giant, Lang Walker, whose buildings and developments are as famous as he was himself. So all of that and plenty more coming up on today's program. And look, John. And just a reminder, as always, email us with any feedback, business at skynews.com.au. Other stories we think you should know about today include Peter Costello created a $212 billion future fund back in 2006 when he was the treasurer from the giant budget surpluses of the mid-2000s. Well, after the coalition's loss to the Rudd government, he resigned from parliament. Costello then joined the future fund board in 2009, became its chairman in 2014 and has been there for the past 10 years but from mid-year, the former Labor Minister, Greg Combe, who has held key roles in industry super funds, will replace Costello as chairman of our Sovereign Wealth Fund. Combe has been the trustee of the country's biggest super fund, Australian Super, and was chairman of IFM Investors, which is owned by a group of the industry funds and is a massive giant itself that invests in infrastructure and private equity here and overseas. And look, the collapse of the San Marco Dam in Brazil in 2015 that killed 15 people and polluted the region, continues to haunt Australia's biggest company, BHP. BHP owned half of the Samarco iron ore mine. The other half was the Brazilian iron ore giant, Vale. The Brazilian Public Prosecution Office is claiming around $32 billion US dollars in reparation, compensation and moral damages from the miners. Now, the Federal Court of Brazil has made an interlocutory decision that moral damages of 9.7 billion US dollars should be paid out once any and all appeals are determined. BHP says it's made allowance in its latest accounts for 3.7 billion for damages from the dam failure. But a bit of basic maths here suggests its obligation for half of 9.7 billion US, that's 4.85 billion, is way higher than what BHP has already socked away. And this, remember, is only a third of the total claim. In November last year, protesters representing victims of the Samarco disaster vented their frustration at the slowness of compensation at BHP's annual meeting. BHP shares today. Let's have a quick look at them. They were down 1.4% at the close. Let's get across those market moves, though, with Edward Boyd. Ed, a Hong Kong court has ordered the liquidation of that Chinese property giant Evergrande two years ago. This is all we were talking about. This has been going on for a long time, Ross, but, yes, big news out of mainland China. Evergrande first defaulted on its debts of more than $300 billion US back in 2021. It's been ordered by a Hong Kong court to be wound up. Uh, the property developer has been desperately trying to reach a deal with creditors, but the court today ordered the liquid of assets. Evergrande can still appeal the ruling. Look, its shares in Evergrande, they plunged 21% today to about 16 Hong Kong cents. Remember, they were worth about 25 Hong Kong dollars in 2020. But here you can see on the screen the stock market reaction on the major Asian markets today. You can see movements here in the Hang Seng. Shanghai is still trading and the Nikkei is up as well. Uh, local market opened high this morning. 
lifted by energy stocks and property trusts. Tech companies, they fell away. ASX 200 finished up 0.3%. Vehicle parts supplier BAPCOR jumped up to telling the market it's expecting to report a 2% increase in revenue this half year to about $1 billion. Diversified miner Pilbara Minerals lifted after its quarterly production report last week. And fibre cement maker James Hardy, well, that was up 3.4%. Oil sector was the top performer today after the oil price lifted to its highest level in two months over the weekend. That's due to the Houthi rebel attacks in the Red Sea disrupting oil trade. So Santos was the top oil producer today. Lithium miner IGO jumped after it announced that production at its partly owned Greenbush's lithium mine in WA, which is the largest in the world, would be marginally reduced in response to market conditions and falling lithium prices. Domino's Pizza, it jumped a little bit after falling about 30% last week. Uh, mining company Gold Road dropped sharply after flagging a drop in gold production at the and higher costs during the December quarter, so it was down about 18.4%. Education provider G8 was down too. And fund manager Perpetual, which reported $4.3 billion in outflows from its funds during the December quarter. And just to finish, supermarket chain Woolworths, it announced a $1.7 billion write-down this morning, mostly due to poor sales in New Zealand. Its Aussie food sales remain pretty strong and it will report its half-year profits next month. And, Ross, that's markets. Yeah, we might go back and have a look at the Red Sea and the disruptions to trade a little bit later in the week. Many thanks, Ed. Well, last week, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, cited changing economic circumstances as the key reason for changes to legislated tax cuts, which will now be directed to more low- and middle-income earners. He said the new tax cuts amount to cost-of-living relief for working families who, he says, are struggling because of high rents, mortgage costs, energy prices and grocery bills. But just how significant is that struggle, especially while most people have a job? Well, on Friday, US economic growth figures show America's economy grew in the past year at 3.3%. Now, that is almost boom times, not busts. As the New York Times reported over the weekend, economists predict the recession. So far, they have been wrong. So is the same true here as well? Let's bring in here Warren Hogan, independent economist, a consultant with the small business lender Judo Bank. Warren, always good to chat to you. There's the issue because there was a a recession forecast for the US, as there has been here. It doesn't appear likely to be coming off. No, no. There's a strong consensus around this soft landing. Um, And the risk to that in most economists' minds is for a hard landing. Every, every time the data comes in, the surprises are on the upside. OK, so, the, so the, the government got it right. That means the Reserve Bank got it right. Their settings were just right for the soft landing that they hoped. They talked about the narrow path. They've actually landed the narrow path, according to these forecasts. Yeah, yeah. well, the Judo Bank PMI last week for January, business conditions have been modest. They're soft landing. They're not into recession. They're not bouncing back. It's good. Employment is, is softened a bit in December, but is still holding up. So we're on track for a soft landing, very strong consensus around it. Like a year ago, there was a pretty strong consensus about a recession, as you said. Uh, I don't like consensus views. They're rarely right. And this one is weakly held by many economists looking at the risks. I think the real risk to these economies, as we saw with those US GDP figures, is for continuing resilience, continuing strength in the economy. So, okay, so if there is continuing strength, that means people have got jobs, that means people can cope. Do they need the tax cuts right now, the middle and low-income earners? Look, I think it's pretty clear that there was a political judgment which dominated the need to adjust the stage three tax cuts. Was it good economics? Look, the good economics of it was that it was only a marginal stimulus to the economy. The alternative to rejigging S3 was 
energy rebates or petrol excise cuts. And that would have been a lot more fresh money into the economy. So I think they did well in trying to make it as minimal impact. But but there still is going to be an impact. OK, so then if the Australian economy does what we've seen the US economy do, and we're six months behind them, we've all agreed in a cycle, if our economy now takes off from here, what happens? The RBA's got our interest rates nowhere near what there are in the US or in other countries. So the real risk is if we are following that path, and many cyclical indicators are picking up in the UK, in the US, in Canada... If we follow that path, then the risk will be that the RBA has to come back into play in the middle of this year. And that would be the big shock because no one's really thinking about that. Okay, so if the RBA has to come back in and raise interest rates in the middle of this year, what happens to the economy? What happens to the households? That's the recession, the real recession scenario. That would be economic and political oblivion in this country. It really would. It would be a disaster for the government and, of course, that would be the worst outcome for the economy and, of course, it would mean the RBA got it wrong in not getting ahead of this inflation. It's just a risk scenario at this stage, but it's the one that's going to cause the most damage and shock people the most if it plays out. Because, as you point out, when you have consensus, that is almost most likely the thing that doesn't happen. Consensus is really the right view. There you go. I've got to tell you what, always good to have you in the program. Many thanks for your time, Warren Hogan there. Thanks, Ross. Well, I'll tell you what, over the weekend, the legendary property developer, Lang Walker, passed away age 78. Walker's contribution to urban development, to housing, to industrial development, to retail, it just simply can't be underestimated. Lang Walker and his Walker Corporation saved and redeveloped, for example, the Woolloomloo Pier in Sydney. They were going to demolish it. He then turned it into upscale apartments, hotels and restaurants. But that's just one. It's a small one, some in hindsight. In Sydney, he developed the King Street Pier. Anybody who's eaten down that area knows how big that is. He reinvigorated the Broadway shopping centre in the heart of Sydney. He built the whole Rhodes Peninsula effectively and is now building four giant buildings in Parramatta effectively, creating a second Sydney CBD. Now, you might think playing Walker Alley worked in Sydney. Of course not. He was all over the world. In Melbourne, he was the force behind the Collins Square development. And in Adelaide 1, the Festival Tower is going to become Adelaide's tallest all-electric building on the Sunshine Coast right now to coincide with the Olympic Games. Massive developments there. And this list barely scratches the surface of Lang Walker's accomplishments. Hope Island, all these places. Kokomo he did, which he started, of course, when he joined his father's earth-moving business, but then moved into development when some cash-strapped developers effectively handed over land in lieu of paying their debts. Well, Tom Forrest is the chief executive of the Urban Task Force that twice made him the property person of the year. And he joins me now. Tom, many thanks for your time. I mean, I'm trying to give some sense of the scale of what Lang Walker and his Walker Corporation have left behind. Well, the, the scale, Ross, is immense and it crosses all areas, as you've outlined. For an individual developer to be successful in every single area of property development, from, from low-rise residential to medium density to high-rise residential to massive commercial towers, he has not only created wonderful buildings for people to live and people to work, but he's also changed communities, changed the way that Sydney thinks about itself. You talked about the Rhodes Peninsula. You talked about uh, the redevelopment of the whole CBD of Parramatta. You talked about the great work that he did at Broadway. Uh, this is a great man who, who was an inspiration to many in the property sector over 50 years. Tell me about the character of the man. I mean, I'd spent quite a lot of time with him, I must admit, and he was always great company, um, rumbunctious, I think you would say. He was an entrepreneur, sure, and wasn't afraid of anybody, is my impression of it, at least anyway. 
That's exactly right. Uh, and your impression is, is well placed because I know that uh, you knew him well, Ross, but I, I have had a, a, a close relationship with him on the Urban Task Force Executive over the last uh, four years uh, while I've been the chief executive. He's a man who never left you not knowing what he thought. You, you when, when he had a view he made sure that you knew and fully understood what that view was. And I think that upfront attitude, which, which was always a, a no-rubbish attitude, was the way that he treated all politicians from all sides of politics, all decision-makers, all stakeholders. He knew exactly what he wanted and why he wanted it. He was prepared to be flexible, but he had to be convinced. Once he was, once he came on board, he'd, he'd go with the new environmental agenda, the, re, the remediation of contamination. He would go with improved quality if that's what the market was demanding. He was a man, he was a man who was great at selling a vision and, and a true leader of our industry. It's interesting because even his ability, his timing was astonishing. When he sold out to Mervac prior to the global financial crisis uh, and effectively was then able to rebuy back his business ultimately or most of it and re-establish it. Um, you know, these are the stuff that the, the true entrepreneurs um, are made of here in Australia. Says a lot about Lang Walker that he, he sold his business, but he didn't like the idea that uh, ASIC and, and the stock market needed to be informed whenever there was a, a negative event, that he thought, this is just what I deal with. If you invest in a Walker Corporation-owned company, then you're investing in my capacity to solve those problems. ASIC didn't like that, so he thought, well, I'll buy my company back and then I'll solve the problems. You know what? He bought the company back, he solved all those problems and he made a fortune out of it. And that really is the great Australian dream, isn't it? I mean, just, well, I've only got 30 seconds. Tell me what he would have said about any potential changes to ne negative gearing right now. Well, I don't think he would have been supportive. I think that was tried uh, back, in, uh, in, back in the 1980s by Paul Keating. He did it for, he did it for a small amount of time. I think it was two years. It, it caused a capital strike. It caused yes. rents to go up. Not enough housing supply. Don't think it's a good idea. Tom Forrest, good to have you on the program. Great legacy in Lang Walker as well. Many thanks for your time. Thank you, Ross. Well, coming up after the break, we do check out the weekend property markets and also try to work out how much rents are likely to rise this year. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. It's great to have your company with us here on Business Now. Now, let's be honest here, the housing markets around Australia were pretty quiet over the past week, especially with the Australia Day long weekend. But the limited stock on the market, it sold reasonably well. Nationally, 514 auctions and a clearance rate just a tick over 62%. In Sydney, it was really quiet, just 54 auctions, almost no interest at all. The clearance rate was under 54%, you can see there. In Melbourne, it was better, 150 auctions, a strong clearance rate above 70 so clearly some Melbournians stayed at home over the long weekend. In Brisbane, 74 auctions, the clearance rate here above 62%, so the national average. In Adelaide, 65 auctions and 69% of those sold. 
In Canberra, there were just nine auctions. Six of those were sold. And in WA, no real auctions to speak of, but there were 443 private sales, and that continues. WA's healthy trend as well. So let's bring in here Cameron Cusher, the Executive Manager of Economic Research at REA Group. Cam, always good to chat to you. I just want to go to this whole issue about negative gearing. Now, people are now quizzing the Treasurer about whether there's any changes likely to negative gearing, whether there's any tweaks around the place in the wake of, obviously, the, the about turn on tax cuts. So just explain to me, if there were tweaks to negative gearing rules in Australia, would it add to housing supply or take away from housing supply? Well, I think if, if we were to change negative gearing rules, Ross, that you would probably see less of an incentive for individual investors to purchase residential property. Um, the idea behind negative gearing is if you're making a loss, uh, you can you can carry over that loss, and it's uh, it's a similar theory to running a business or anything like that. So, if there were tweaks to negative gearing rules, I think you would see fewer individual investors. I guess uh, any government doing that would hope that institutional investors step up into that place, but. Whether or not that would actually happen remains to be seen. We know there's still a lot of challenges around build to rent um, and, you know, no one's really out there buying in terms of institutions uh, a lot of rental properties and making them available for rental. So I, I think okay. it would, especially right now... Sorry. I was going to say that the one thing we do know is if we go back in history, Paul Keating famously tried to change negative gearing rules. That lasted about six months before the supply of housing. There was a crisis in the housing market. We know, of course, uh, politically that when Bill Shorten tried to change those rules ahead of the election, he, he lost an election that otherwise might have been won. So this is the reason why you get a sense that any government is going to be very sensitive and especially one that's got such an ambitious target on the number of new homes to be built in Australia over the next five years or so. Yeah, it's exactly right. And as you said, you know, Bill Shorten losing that election is not ancient history. It only happened uh, a couple of elections ago. So uh, whilst Anthony Albanese didn't rule out uh, changes to negative gearing, I think they'll be very cautious about doing that, particularly at a time like now where the rental market is the tightest we've ever seen. We've seen record low rental vacancy rates. We're seeing record low levels of supply of rental stock. We've seen rents increase by about 33% over the last three years um, the last thing you want to do at the moment is make it tougher on renters. Now, obviously, um, people that don't own a property or don't own an investment property look at these uh, negative gearing benefits and say, well, why are we preferencing uh, investors? But ultimately, it's because historically, um, big businesses or big corporations haven't wanted to invest in rental stock. And the social housing stock of rental properties has dwindled so much over the last 30 or 40 years. So if you don't get those individuals providing rental stock, who's going to provide it? That's so true. And that only makes the rental crisis worse, as you say. But there would be many Australian families right now coming up for rental reviews. Quite often they are at the beginning of the year. What's your own sense on how those reviews have gone? Are there some markets clearly tighter for rents than others at the moment? There definitely is. If we look at the five major capital cities, so Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth, each of those cities have seen double-digit rent increases over the last 12 months. Interestingly, most of them, the rate of rental growth is actually slower in 2023 than it was in 2022. But at the same time, in most capital city, most of those capital cities, we're seeing the number of properties available for rent at pretty much historic low levels. So in terms of rent renewals, I think in most of those capital cities, people are going to be facing double-digit increases in rents 
uh, when they do come up for renewal. And of course, that's making it harder for people to find the money to pay rent. It's making it harder for those people that aspire to own a home, to save a deposit, to get into home ownership. Um, and unfortunately as well, there's no meaningfully large increase in supply on the horizon. So the rental market looks set to remain challenging for some time. But the one thing we always know is that if the rental market is challenging, that ends up forcing up capital prices. So in other words, prices become less affordable based on pure supply and demand. And it doesn't appear at this stage, as you and I have talked about before, with the problems in the construction industry, that there's any significant increase in supply coming anytime soon. No, that's right. I mean, as you say, we've, we've had material prices rise by about 33% since the beginning of the pandemic. Labor supplies on is short because there's already quite a lot of housing under construction. Uh, there's a lot of major infrastructure projects going on, which is drawing workers away from housing. And, and then equally, you've got the highest interest rates in 12, 12 years as well. So finding the people to buy these properties, finding the finance to go ahead and start new projects is, is a very big challenge at the moment as well. So we need more supply. I think we all agree we desperately need more housing supply. Actually making that happen is a real challenge under these circumstances. REA Group's Cameron Cush, always good to have you on the program, Cameron, and always great to have a chat to you about these things. We'll see how it goes over the next few months or so. Thanks, Ross. Well, just as we finish up today, just a little bit of viewer feedback from our email, and this is in particular over our Business Weekend interview with Sir Tim Clark. Now, this is uh, coming from John, who sent us a note, and he basically says his comments, especially about producing hydrogen from nuclear instead of renewables. Well, Sir Tim, being in the airline industry, might not be aware of the solution that's been hiding in full sight. Let's go to what Sir Tim told us over the weekend. The nuclear will give you modular nuclear energy will give you the ability to not only power what you need for a country but also give you the power to do all these um, power to liquid uh, transformations someone else who's gotten contact with us sanjay says he's learnt and grown new investing skills from watching our programs business weekend especially and he even now gets his two sons to watch the program that's what we need more viewers sanjay good on you mate well as always if you have any feedback ideas tips or hints for us just send us an email business at skynews.com.au any feedback is always welcome anyway that is it for today's program thanks for your company today we'll see you tomorrow Want to stay up to date with the latest news from Australia and overseas? It's a scam. It's a hoax. And find out what's happening in showbiz. And the Oscar goes to... And don't forget sport. Collingwood win the grand final. Our podcast from the newsroom gives you the latest headlines direct from the team at news.com.au. Listen to From the Newsroom wherever you get your podcasts.